Welcome to Encounter God's Truth, a weekly half hour of Bible teaching from Whitcomb Ministries and Dr. John Whitcomb. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and we'll be going back to Appalachian Bible College in Mount Hope, West Virginia today to hear more from our series on biblical apologetics. We're going to begin the final lesson in our study. It's called The Necessity of God's Word. In this program, we'll see that we have a power source that's readily available, which allows us as mere finite human beings to have victory and influence in the spiritual realm, even though we're opposed by all the enemies of God and His gospel, both human and demonic, as well as our own sin natures. What is the power source that can give us this victory? It's nothing hidden or mysterious, but something that's readily available to each one of us. It's God's Word, which is infinitely sufficient to meet our need, As we teach every week here and encounter God's truth, it's true from the beginning to the end. If you've missed any of the earlier messages in this series, remember, you can always review them again in our library at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. But right now, we join the students and faculty assembled at Appalachian Bible College for this important message on the necessity of God's Word. Dr. Anderson and friends, It has been a joyful privilege to be back again at ABC and to share from God's precious, infallible, and errant word His perspectives on our personal life, testimony, and witness and ministry. I trust you've already begun to grasp just a little bit in our previous three messages that God's infallible word is absolutely essential for effective witness to Him no matter what the opposition may be. In fact, uh, God tells us very clearly that the opposition to his word, as far as we're concerned, from our perspective, is infinite. To him, Satan, demons, depraved people are infinitesimal in contrast to his sovereignty and his glory in heaven. But as far as you and I are concerned, it is a hopeless obstacle to effective witness for Christ the Lord, if we depend upon ourselves. Now we have already seen something of the amazing opposition, haven't we? The problems that make our ministry and our testimony hopeless in terms of converting anybody, of seeing anybody saved. Namely, the fact of human depravity in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Psalms, all through the scriptures, in fact, from Genesis to Revelation. And we understand what human depravity means. Not that everyone is as bad as they can be. Or that some people don't do some good things. Jesus talked about those and Paul too. uh, Who are relatively good people. For a good man, some would even dare to die. We read. But as far as attaining God's standards, minimal standards of acceptance into his presence. We're hopelessly. Sinful. Now, friends, on top of all that, and because of that, we have God's revelation concerning the function of Satan to to help sinful people do their sinning more effectively. Isn't that an amazing comprehension that God has given us of his function? Yes, if people want to be helped by Satan to be more effective to oppose God, he's available. But the situation isn't hopeless for, for believers. If we humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God, we can then rebuke the devil and he will what? Flee from us. Just as Michael the archangel discovered, remember, in contending over the body of Moses. Satan is 
awesome in his power as far as you and I are concerned. In his vast army of hundreds of millions of demons. How can a mere finite human being possibly cope with such opposition? And of course, in addition to our sin nature and the sin nature of the unbeliever and Satan and his armies of demons, we realize, friends, that only God's precious word can help us see victory. The word of God. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick, that's alive, living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of sword, soul and spirit, is a discern of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not naked and open before the eyes of him we ha- with whom we have to do. However awesome the opposition may be, according to God's plan, God's word is infinitely sufficient to accomplish what you and I and all our brilliance or experience or maturity or self-esteem could never, ever achieve in turning people from sin to righteousness, from Satan to God. Well, think of 2 Timothy 4.2. In the light of this, preach the word, Paul says. How often? In season and out of season. In other words, whether people appreciate it or whether they don't appreciate it, is totally irrelevant. Continue preaching the word. And sometimes it may take years to see an effect. I remember vividly the awesome choice I had when I first came to know Christ as my savior at Princeton University in that dormitory room in February of 1943. I was an only child. My mother and dad were not believers. How could I help them? It took 30 long years, dear friends, of prayer, And hopefully a careful, patient witness of the grace of God and the sufficiency of Jesus. To see my father finally, when he came to live with us, after my mother died, to respond to the gospel. Years and years and years. But God is in no hurry. You don't rush things and compromise the message in order to have immediate results. No, no. God, as for God, his ways are perfect, and he wants his word honored. Now, let's consider 2 Timothy 2, 23. I'm always fascinated by this statement. How does a true servant of the Lord function in the light of this situation we have just outlined? The servant of the Lord must not strive. Don't pressure people. Don't manipulate people. Uh, We often wonder, don't we, sometimes in a great evangelistic campaigns we hear about and have seen and perhaps even attended occasionally. It's almost as if it's impossible not to go forward when the invitation is given. In fact, uh, some evangelists, sadly, pressure people, manipulate people and embarrass people who don't stand up and come forward to make a public decision. And, of course, we are not criticizing making public decisions. We're so thrilled at what we saw God do last night here. And I say, thank you, Lord, for that. But the the, the tendency, the temptation is to pressure people into making a decision which later they regret. And it's even harder than ever then to win these people to the Lord if they have a sense that they have been pressured or manipulated. Watch these words. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. 
after capable of teaching, patient. Don't don't be pushy. Don't don't pressure people. Because it's not finite pressure, it's infinite pressure from the Holy Spirit that's going to bring the transformation. And by the way, when God does it, it lasts forever. When I do it, it never lasts. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Who is their worst enemy? Themselves. Not you. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. God has to change the heart. God has to change the mind. The heart and mind is God's special realm of operation, see? To the acknowledging of the truth, the truth about God and Christ, sin, salvation, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Here's his function, you see, his snare, his trap, who are taken captive by him at his will. Now this... The whole scenario is presented in this brief passage that I've just read. And I say, Lord, that's an amazing outline for Christian ministry and the dynamics of how people are going to be convicted of sin and born again. God will do the work as we patiently, humbly, graciously, but clearly present his plan of salvation to lost people around us. Now... Let's consider then 2 Corinthians 2.16. A born-again Christian has an enormous influence if he walks with God in a godless world. How do you like this statement? Let's begin with verse 14. Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Some of the things we've had to look at in the Bible have maybe created a sense of depression and defeat. Lord... If people are that bad, and I'm that bad, and Satan is that powerful, and demons are that plentiful, then how can we ever do anything for you? Well, thanks be unto God, said Paul, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. We're on the victory side, dear friends. There's a battle going on. And maketh manifest the savor or the fragrance of his knowledge by us in every place. As we were reminded by our Dr. Herbster, may your face attract attention and create a question. Why are you so joyful? Why are you, you're different. See, do you attract attention that way to the fact that God has changed your life and your heart and your mind and your direct direction and goal? Listen, listen. Uh, and make it manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. As you give out a gospel tract, do it with a smile. Maybe gain attention by saying something gracious or something encouraging that may open up an opportunity to uh, build step by step into someone's heart by the Holy Spirit. For we are unto God a sweet savor or fragrance of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor or fragrance of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. And I like this question, don't you, even from the Apostle Paul? Who is sufficient for these things? Why, friends, we're in, we're in an infinite operation here that determines the eternal destiny of human beings in heaven or hell. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. 
Now, friends, we can just begin to realize the magnitude of God's plan here in form of a little chart. I hope this will be of some help to you, as it has to me from time to time. Uh, over here, we have symbolized the unbeliever with a darkened heart that doesn't have cleansing and purifying and forgiveness and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever. And notice that uh, he is surrounded by an impenetrable barrier to any outside finite pressure. It's called his sinful nature. Okay? And over here we've tried to uh, depict the believer whose heart has been cleansed by the Holy Spirit based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And uh, the believer may fall into the serious temptation of trying to win the unbeliever on a horizontal basis. Namely, just provide Christian evidences to penetrate that heart through logic and philosophy and history and science. And by the way, all these arguments that we've talked about through archaeology and history and logic, I mean, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of evidences that show that the Bible has got to be supernatural in origin. But the amazing thing we discover is that no matter how powerful the arguments are in the realm of creation and prophecy and so forth, they cannot penetrate that heart. They cannot get through to that heart. Well, then what's the answer? What's the approach? God says you have... Now, this is very illogical from a human standpoint. God says you have to approach the unbeliever through the third heaven. You have to go this way, through prayer, faith, and obedience in relation to God on the basis of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God, not my word or your word, the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And neither is any creature that is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to... God knows that person infinitely. He knows what can reach that person, namely his precious word alone. That's one of the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn. Well, all the things, Lord, that I've learned about how we know the Bible is true, why can't I use those arguments, those evidences? Well, friends... Uh, let's stop and think for a moment. As the word of God penetrates into that unbeliever, something of infinite power has reached his heart. Now, just think of the evidences Jesus provided. If you think our evidences can be effective, and they can be, and that's a whole subject of its own, I think of the evidences Jesus himself gave. Stupendous sign miracles. Hundreds of them. In fact, someone has suggested that every sick, crippled, leprous person in Israel, by the time Jesus' ministry was finished, was healed. Thousands of people. It says it over and over, year after year. Thousands of people. Can heal them all. Heal them all. Heal. Then five, and I say, well, Lord, I should think that the whole nation then would have turned to him. Why, on one occasion, friends, with a boy's lunch, he fed 5,000 men plus their families with food left over. And they said, they all agreed, this is John 6, uh, let's make him king. I mean, anyone who can feed everybody for nothing su supernaturally is our candidate for king. 
Then he began telling them about himself and who he was and that they had to believe in him on the basis of his uh, substitutionary atoning death. And guess what happened at the end of chapter 6? They all left him. You say, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Hadn't they seen sign miracles? Yes. Miracles like the like of which had never been seen before in the history of the world? Yes. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave me too? And one of them finally spoke up, of course, Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Right. That's the difference. But even one of them was a doubter, Thomas, and another one was demon-possessed, namely Judas. That left ten out of thousands by the end of that day. And I say, Lord, that helps me to understand what the miracles were for. Why, Jesus, friends, said... An evil, adulterous nation demands signs, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Namely, as he was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, his bodily resurrection is his final proof to the whole human race of who he is. The sign miracles, may I say it this way, were almost totally ineffective and worthless to convert anybody, ever. In Israel. That wasn't their function. It was simply to do what? To attract attention to himself as the God appointed Messiah and King of Israel so that they could then hear his message and then their response to the message would determine their eternal destiny. This is an awesome thing to think about. Now, I almost hate to read this chapter. I, with fear and trembling, I ask you to turn to Luke 16. Luke, this is absolutely awesome. The rich man in Hades. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. Would you kindly agree with me? He was in desperate condition. He had nothing of this world's goods. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That means the place of blessing, the place of the faithful in what at that time was called paradise. The upper Sheol Hades, where believers went when they died. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, or Hades, the lower Sheol Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, in close fellowship with him. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. That is the situation now of every unbeliever who's ever died. I just, I'm staggered by this. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, 
so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Lazarus can't get to you, sorry. Neither can they pass to us that they that would come from thence. In other you can't come here either. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that rich men and Hades and torments said to Abraham, Father, that thou would ascend into my brother's house. I have a plan. I want you to reach my living brothers by sign miracles. Now, this would impress some people today because we are harassed in every direction by people who are committed to sign miracle ministries to change the hearts of people by spectacular things that they can see. Now watch the response of God through Abraham. I have five brethren that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In other words, would you please send Lazarus, the beggar, back to the realm of the living? Because my five brothers often came to my mansion and saw this beggar by the door, and they had recognized him when they see him. Please send him back to the realm of the living. And I mean, think of this as an evangelistic program. He could go from house to house, knock on the doors of my brothers and say, I am back from the dead. I saw your dead brother in Hades in torment. Do you think that would get their attention? How do you like that for a sign miracle ministry? Look at God's response through Abraham. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible. They have the Old Testament scripture. They have the infallible and errant self-authenticating word of God. In other words, that's what they need is the Bible. The truth inscripturated by the Holy Spirit. But he said, now this is why he was where he was. Listen to how he despises God's word. Do you catch this? He said, nay, Father Abraham. In other words, who cares about the Bible? Old wives' fables, stories for children maybe, but not for my brothers. You don't understand, sir. They're intellectuals. They're scientists. They don't accept stories supposedly from God. They want to see something that's empirical, tangible, self-evident, and thus convincing. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. That's what they need, a sign miracle. Hmm. And here's how it ends, folks. And he said unto him, Abraham said to the rich man, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Really? Well, that's what happened when Jesus arose from the dead. The whole story of the book of Acts is that in spite of the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled his promise, he said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. And he did and rose from the dead. And the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees hated the message and threatened and tormented God's servants for mentioning resurrection, even of Jesus. Oh yes, friends, even if one rises from the dead... They will not repent. You know what Jesus did for his friend Lazarus one day in Bethany? He raised him from the dead. Lazarus, come forth! I'm very impressed by what happened, aren't you? Immediately, the corpse stood at the entrance of the tomb. And he said, loose him and let him go. He's fine. He's alive. Probably felt better than he had in his previous life. 
he didn't have to be dragged out half dead for recuperation. Don't you think all the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees would have just swamped the whole, I mean, they said, that settles it. We believe. Read what happened next. The enemies of Jesus got together and made a decision. Just for that, we're going to kill Lazarus and Jesus. Hmm. That doesn't sound intelligent. Well, that's the problem. Because the mind of man, which is an aspect of the soul, heart, spirit of man in his sinfulness, his darkness, cannot function intelligently. Only the Spirit of God can bring us reason to see God's realities as they really are. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. On the basis of these words from the Apostle Paul, Dr. John Whitcomb has been teaching us about biblical apologetics on this edition of Encounter God's Truth. Please keep in touch with us at facebook.com slash Ministries, and you can find that link easily at whitcombministries.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying for God to use His Word in your life today. Thank you for joining us.